This is Family Twist, a podcast about astonishing adoption stories and finding family via DNA magic. I'm Kendall. And I'm Corey. And we've been inseparable partners in life since 030405, also known as March 4th, 2005. In January 2018, our found family journey took us 3,000 miles from the San Francisco Bay Area to New England, where we now live near my biological father, two half-siblings, and their families. We love being near them all, and the adventure continues. Thanks for joining us once again. Our guest today is Debbie Osborne, author of the book Raising Other People's Children. Now, Debbie has spent decades working with traumatized children, serving as a social worker, group home parent, criminal prosecutor, volunteer, and board member, attorney defending youth-serving organizations, foster parent, step-parent, and grandparent raising a grandchild. That's a, that's a long list of credits, Debbie. <laughs> you know, you live long enough, you get a lot of experience. Right. <laughs> so I think my first question for you is just um, where does this passion for helping children come from? Well, a lot of it comes from the way I grew up with my parents. They were always involved in youth ministries, either with their church or with camping programs or that sort of thing. So through working with them, I got to see a a lot of uh, less than optimal families up close. Uh, We used to call them at-risk kids way back then. And then I um, just, you know, discovered I have an ability to, to... work with kids and connect with them. I have a lot of patience and I understand particularly teenagers, that whole not fitting in, not feeling comfortable, the uh, not, you know, being a a square peg in a round hole um, sort of thing. And then just the more I worked with organizations that worked with kids, um, they're all just really nice people. I just enjoy having them as clients. So so before you got into this kind of work, I mean, did, did you always see this as your calling? Or when you started going to school, were you, were you looking for other career options? No, I started college with the idea that I was going to go to medical school and be a psychiatrist. And then I hit organic chemistry and <laughs> um, saw that as a sign from God to change my major to um, speech. And my... <laughs> My parents, I couldn't quite articulate to them what I could do with a major in speech um, other than go to law school. And uh, my so my, my mom um, strongly encouraged me to get a degree in education. And so I, I got a degree as a teacher and I, and I started teaching and I, I didn't really mind a, a lot of teaching. I, I loved working with kids. I hated paperwork. And my one-on-thirty skills were not as good as my one-on-one skills, mm. so I gravitated from there into a um, social work slash probation officer uh, position, juvenile court, and um, to, I just sort of, you know, kept just had a passion for working with the kids because, as most social workers will tell you, the kids were usually the presenting problem. <laughs> They weren't the problem in the family. They were just the presenting problem or the scapegoat or sometimes the only people acting rationally mm-hmm. in an irrational situation. Right. Here, so. Here's the result of this unfortunate situation. Right. Mm-hmm. Right. Exactly. Mm-hmm. So I, I just stayed involved. And then a lot of it comes from my, my religious beliefs of 
caring for the widow and orphan and um, just I just always had a strong sense that my experiences and my skills had suited me for working with kids and therefore I should not waste it. Mm-hmm. That's some great insight to have, especially, you know, as a young person trying to figure out what they're going to do with the rest of their life. <laughs> right. Well, I, I I have career ADD. I've never, I've never been very good at five-year or 10-year plans. <laughs> um, and, and so I, I'm, uh, in a lot of areas of my life, I'm just um, prone to say, oh, that's, this looks cool. Let's try this for a while. Let's <laughs> see how it works out. And, mm-hmm. and, uh, and, and then sometimes, you know, I, I got into jobs that I was not well suited for because my supervisors and I often had differing views of our respective importance in the universe. And so... <laughs> I've worked for I, that person. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> and I was the one who was dispensable. Yes. <laughs> so. Would you say that you've got a natural rapport with children and, and teenagers? Or where does that um, that drive and that, that you have to have the right kind of personality to be able to have an impact? Well, a lot of it is personality. A lot of it is the fact that I was not a kid who ever fit in. I was always sort of the odd person out, um, the, the, the kid who got good grades and no Valentines kind of, <laughs> kind of thing. And so I, I, um, I understand where kids are coming from when they don't fit in. Um, and of course, as an adult, I see areas where they don't always have to fit in, but mm-hmm. sometimes they do need to learn, um, some life skills and resilience and so i i bring that um my memories of being an outsider along with my understanding of there are areas where your life is easier if you learn the skills to be an insider Mm -hmm. so take us back to when you first decided that fostering would be an option for you around about what age were you and where were you in life and what were you doing? Well, I had, um, when I, when I got out of law school, um, well, actually when I was, even while I was in law school, um, my, I I worked as a a house parent for a group home in the area. And that was because I just come out of my, um, social work uh, field. I joke, I'm, I'm a, social worker who burned out and retreated to law school. And <laughs> so, so even though I'd retreated to law school, I still um, stay, kept my hand in by working on weekends as a, as a house parent, a particular group. Um, and when I got out of law school, um, one of my, not my very first job, but my second job when I sort of stabilized, I signed up to work as a uh, respite care home. Hmm or an emergency home, I guess is probably the best way to put it. Um, I was the, the call, the, one of the placements that got the call at midnight um, for we've got to have somewhere for these kids now and can you keep them for up to two weeks while we look for a permanent place. Mm. And that worked well with my schedule because with my job, it was fairly demanding and required travel. So I wasn't able to, and I was single, um, so I was not able to, um, make a commitment to do long-term care, but on any given day when they called me, I could 
look at my schedule and say, well, sure, I'll be home for the next week. So that's how long you have. Again, it was just, I just, I knew what the need was and I had seen the need up close and I knew I had the perspective and the skills to, um, to work with kids. And I had developed patience. Um, one of the things I, I tried to do in my book was was explain to people these these kids are traumatized. They come from pretty um, pretty bad things that have happened to them, and so we we have to have um, some patience and some understanding, knowing where they're coming from. And I'm I'm not a patient person normally. I always joke, I just figure God doesn't want me to waste time being patient. <laughs> but, but when it comes to these kids, I, I don't know if it's patience so much as I just learned to just let things bounce off of me. I just didn't take it personally. It wasn't about me. It was about the situation. It was about life. It was about their caseworker. It was about everything. Mm -hmm. And I just sort of let them bounce off and then when they were through bouncing, we could maybe make some progress. Now, before I forget, and I definitely want to talk to you about building a connection with these kids, but I want to go back to um, your joke about burning out of social work and, and getting, into, <laughs> yes. getting into becoming a lawyer. What was it about the social work situation that you decided that this was not going to be your full-time gig anymore? I was dipping out the ocean with a teaspoon. Mm -hmm. There, the need was so great, and I didn't have any of the tools that we need. I mean, what what these kids needed were stable families, and the state can't provide that. Mm -hmm. Government workers can't provide. So I didn't have any of the tools that these kids needed to really make their lives better over the long haul and over the long term. And so I was just, you know, running in, slapping on a Band-Aid, then running to the next crisis and putting a fire out there. And that was all I was doing was triage. If you, if you think of it in terms of a mash unit, you know, when the helicopters come in and, and only imagine instead of looking at sending them off to surgery, you're looking at them putting on a bandage and then putting on a bandage and then they just kind of stay there. Mm -hmm. until the next helicopter comes in right yes yeah well we can relate mash is definitely one of our favorite shows so we know, we know her. that's right so going back to those first days uh as somebody who could take in some some kids for respite or an emergency situation how do you connect with them like what is what was your approach for like getting them to trust you and to understand where you're coming from well, you have to um, you have to be who you are. You have to not be trying to get them to trust you, frankly, because if if you're if you're aiming for a particular goal, then you're going to you're going to come across either as manipulative in the sense of, of I do this and I expect you to respond a certain way. Um, or the kids are not going to respond and you're going to be very frustrated because you have unmet expectations. So really just go in with no expectations, with the understanding that you can't take this personally. It's not about you. 
you have to develop a thick skin. I, I, I sort of have one um, naturally and by training as a lawyer. But you have to um, develop that to a high degree. And then the next thing is the, the kid, you just have to have their back. Um, it, I talk in my book about you have to make a one-way commitment. Uh, you have to be willing to care about these kids no matter what feedback they give you, no matter what they, no matter whether they respond, no matter whether they reject you. Now, you do have to have boundaries because all healthy relationships have boundaries. And so you have to communicate to the kids, no, we, you, you cannot do that and stay here. And, and some of them may push it. They may do that, in which case you just have to say, I'm sorry, kids who do drugs can't stay in my house. And, and again, every person has individual boundaries. At the time that I was a foster parent for, for most of my kids, um, I was a lawyer. And um, and I was either um, working for private foundations or I was a federal prosecutor. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, drugs were just, tolerating drugs was just not an option. Um, mm-hmm. My self, self-preservation required that I draw that hard line. The, um, the other um, thing that I always said was, look, I, I'm, I'm not equipped to take care of kids who are actively suicidal. So, you know, the, the passive ideation and depression and those kind of things, um, I, I could deal with. It, once you get into this, you'll learn the difference between active and passive mm-hmm. kinds of things. But um, a child who's actively experimenting or trying or, you know, maybe sort of kind of um, building their way up to um, trying to themselves or commit suicide I just I, I, I couldn't watch them 24 hours a day I couldn't lock up the knives I, there's just things that I couldn't do I had a few hard and fast rules and other people have different rules you know I've had I've had, uh, mm-hmm. had friends who um, had to disrupt placements because the you know it was older kids who were being abusive towards their younger kids that you know you have to protect the other kids so there are boundaries, but, but short of those boundaries, you just have to learn to say, and even with those boundaries, you have to learn to say, I love you. I care about you. I will be here for you. And, um, for example, I have, I have had kids who were, um, who were runaways and anyone who's worked in this field will tell you running away, it's a coping mechanism and it's, it's how kids respond. So in the lingo of the field, Runaways run away. And so I learned to say to the kids, look, you know, they would call and say, well, here's why I ran away and what you're going to do about it. And I would say, I love you. I care about you. When you come back, you have a home here. But I'm, I'm, in fact, I had one kid who uh, was negotiating with me, wanted, wanted me to stay in town. Um, I had had plans to go to an extended family get together, and she didn't want to go with me, and she had to because there was nowhere else for her. And so her plan was that she would run away, and then she would negotiate and come back. Uh, and I just said, "No, I, I'm assuming that you have found a place that you're happy with. I've called in the um, runaway report, and I'm I'm leaving town. 
So the door will be locked and you will not be able to get into the house until Monday. So either you come back tonight or, Mm -hmm. you know, we just will talk again on Monday. And that that sounds very hard, but um, you just have to say, I love you. I care about you, but I'm not tolerating this. You know, when you are ready to come back, I will be here, but you have to come back. Right. 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 How did that go? Did she come back? <laughs> uh, yes, yes, she did. And this was a job. I mean, she was she was in and out and round and about, and and we finally developed a good relationship. And then she she um, has disappeared again. She does that from time to time, and and it, mm-hmm. it may be a couple of years before I hear from her again. But because uh, runaways run away, she's an adult now, mm-hmm. but it's still a coping mechanism. Mm-hmm. So I imagine a lot of uh, kids coming into the foster uh, system don't expect to hear that, hi, I'm a federal prosecutor. So what was that reaction like? That's true. Oh, my poor kids. Yeah. they. Um, I used to try to downplay it. And um, one poor child um, came in and we were just chatting about this, that, and the other. And I, I'd mentioned I, I was a federal prosecutor, and she said, "Oh yeah, I've got a friend who's, um, who's who's in big trouble." And she mentioned his name. And she was giving me all of this about how he was going to get a, a suspended sentence or something else, and I recognized his name, and he was not getting a suspended sentence. <laughs> I was the prosecutor. It was going to be later that week. Um, he he went off for quite a long period of time it was it was a pretty serious offense but you know that wasn't the story he was telling all of his friends that sort of set an interesting tone for that placement um but then you know another time i I had a child who um she got to talking about my job to at school and some other kids found out that i was the prosecutor assigned to their brother's case and so they um, started making threats she called me she got upset she you know left school I had to go pick her up calm things down and I went down to the school and they were putting all the blame on her and I said no I'm you know it would surprise me if she was bragging but I know she didn't say anything to these kids because she didn't know this defendant's name I do Mm. not talk about my cases at home so it, it was they were the ones who had to recognize my name and not vice versa. And um, the school just wasn't very interested. So back to my office, and I filed a report with the federal marshals for um, threatening the family of the federal prosecutor. And mm-hmm. they went down and did the interviews and talked to everybody and calmed things down. Um, and suddenly the school was taking it much more seriously than they were when it was just a parent defendant kids um so but you know i felt like it, it was my job that had caused problems for this kid so it was my job's responsibility to get her back on track mm-hmm. so there's just a lot of different things um that came up I, there was one daughter um she went out with her biological sister shopping and then the, this group of kids came back home and and I overheard them arguing. And uh, so I, I kind of, you know, wandered over within hearing distance. <laughs> they, they couldn't see me, but I could hear what was going on. 
And I heard my daughter say, look, no, I'm not going back with you because you plan to use that woman's ATM card that you found. And if you get caught, if, if I go with you and we get caught, everyone will go to jail. And that's fine for you because your parents will bail you out. But I live with Debbie and she will let me stay in jail. Mm. So I, I I was rather proud of myself, <laughs> actually, because because the rest of the story is my daughter stayed home. The rest of them went back, used the card, got caught, got arrested, and to their shock and surprise, although they were underage for purposes of criminal law, they were adults, and they oh. ended up with a record. That, um, haunted them for at least 20 or more years Ooh. in getting jobs wow. you know had a they had a really hard time passing criminal records checks for, mm -hmm. for various mm -hmm. jobs wow wow so debbie um i can only imagine you know being a, a single foster parent with um a probably pretty high pressure job at what point do you think about maybe i'd like to be a mom well you know Fortunately, um, my my biological clock never went off. I love having kids in my life, but I'm not a baby person. My uh, I'm very close to my my nieces and nephews, for example, because I, I was single for so long. And uh, my nephew just had his second baby, and I was just mm -hmm. talking to him tonight and said, "Well, you know, I'll, I'll come down, but you know, I'm not very much used with babies." And he said, "Yeah." I remember you used to always say that we were pretty boring until we could argue with <laughs> so, yeah. yeah, yeah, that, that that's it. <laughs> so <laughs> so I, I have been very content to collect seven kids and ten grandkids <laughs> through foster care and, and um, step parenting and um, have it, I've just never had the urge to have biological kids. How many kids did you at one point have in your home at one time? What was the most? Um, the most I've ever had has been um, four kids. Well, five. Um, my our, our middle son and his daughter moved into our basement uh, temporarily eleven years ago, and <laughs> they're they're still there. Um, <laughs> but it, it's a separate apartment and everything. But That's until. Well, right before the pandemic, best thing, best decision we ever made, and I, 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 it's just fortuitous that we did it before the pandemic. We finally got the kitchen and bathroom in downstairs, and mm. uh, so we had the house to ourselves during the pandemic. Right. Um, but before we got that set in, they were living down there, but they were coming up to the kitchen and the bathroom, and then our youngest son was still home, and then um, our uh, one of my Former foster kids hit a really bad patch, and we inherited foster grandchild. So that was um, five, well, actually four kids and three adults in the house because my, wow. my middle son was an adult. Um, so that was um, that was complicated. You know, we we had to do things like who's responsible for dinner on which night, and we had a schedule for when people could do their laundry. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. All, all of those kinds of scheduling things. Wow. Talk to us a little bit about um, finding love a little bit later in life and, and what that meant to your household. Well, I, um, my, my 
my husband and I, we met, um, actually we met online and um, we were both really, he was sort of over relationships and I was not really sure that I was missing out on all that much. And so we both just kind of went online with, uh, it, was, it was Christian Cafe back then. I don't know what it's called now because it's been almost 20 years. But um, we were both just looking for somebody to go to a movie with every so often. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so we <laughs> we spent the first three months saying, well, this is what I think about that. So there. And, <laughs> and, and um and and then to our surprise, you know, it it just clicked. He had five kids; three of them were adults, so there were two still at home. I was um, in between my uh, all my foster kids had aged out and were in college or or um, living on their own, and um, so it was just me and the dogs. And you know, at the time, it all just sort of meshed very painlessly and seamlessly um I, I i liken it to being inside a car that's speeding down the expressway to people outside it looks like everything's going way <laughs> too fast but but from inside the relationship it was just fine yep. so um that was um that was in in my 40s and we um we had the, the two kids at home, and then, um, like I said, we ended up with uh, my our middle son, who was an adult, but he and his daughter, uh, long stories why they, they needed a place to stay suddenly, and so we had the, the basement apartment, and um, they've been there ever since. I mean, it works out fine. We, we all get along well enough, so it's not a problem, and um, we ended up with the foster placement with a foster grandchild and and I will say you know um having been both a single foster parent and a married foster parent um there are I I was surprised how much harder it was in some respects it was easier in the sense that I had an extra pair of hands to to help things um but it was harder because I I suddenly had to um, having get get another person on board, I couldn't make all the decisions by myself. You know, as as a step parent, I I let him make the decisions about his kids. I mean, I was there for his backup, but suddenly with this foster kid, we had to parent together, and um, it, it the, this you know wonderful, reasonable, loving, self sacrificing man that I married just didn't agree with me. he had strange ideas yeah. <laughs> not getting with the program <laughs> so. we we often joke about ourselves because everybody who knows us would say that i'm the disciplinarian i would be the disciplinarian uh-huh. and Corey's the fun dad he would just be like oh that's fine and it's not fine, you know, like it's just right. And right. That's okay. I mean, you know, I, I know that we could negotiate it, but it would be different than being by yourself. You know? Yes. Yes. Yeah. It, it would be because like I said, it, it'd be easier in the sense that there's another person to do the traveling or whatever, but then, then you've got to 
it becomes a relationship among three people instead of two. And uh, it, it is very different in a lot of ways. Did you compromise or did you bring him around to your uh, way of thinking? <laughs> we, we learned to compromise. Uh, I learned to be a little more, a little more hard nosed. Um, he learned to listen to me about traumatized kids. That one of the issues we kept running into was he kept saying, I have raised five kids. And I said, yes, your kids have not, not been traumatized to this point as, as much as this child has. So um, we, 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 we would kind of get back and forth into what's trauma and what's attitude and what's trauma and what's being obnoxious. And we both kind of overcompensated from, for our respective positions and uh, we what actually helped a lot was getting a third party who knew what they were talking about both of us respected and to, and to find someone who knows as much as they're who knows enough about what they're talking about for me or my husband to admit they know more than us uh, that was a big lift but <laughs> we managed to find somebody <laughs> <laughs> So who is this person and how did they help? Well, it was, um, there were a couple of people. One, one was actually a, uh, a former priest for, we're, we're Anglican, my husband's Anglican, I married an Anglican. Um, and this was a, a, a former priest who was a friend of ours that we both respected. Sort of went to him for some triage at one point and then moved into a um, family counselor who, who had a lot of experience as um, with with trauma? I, I would say any of your listeners who are facing any of this, you need to get someone who's a trauma focused therapist because they just have to understand um, trauma changes kids, and, and and then you have to understand what trauma is. Uh, you know, just as not everything is bullying, uh, not everything that upsets kids is trauma. So. Um, this per this um, therapist, she both had been trained and she understood, and she was a foster adoptive parent herself. So she understood what it was like on a day to day basis more than someone who was just in uh, who who just knew it theoretically. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. So Debbie, what kind of grandma are you? <laughs> One of my grandkids once looked at me and said, you know, all my friends have sweet cookie baking grandmas. I got the scary lawyer grandma. <laughs> Somebody had to have one. Right. <laughs> Somebody had to have one. So, um, yeah, I, I tend to be the grandma who says, oh, come on in. Let's, you know, sit around, chat. How are you doing? And, oh, I'm, I'm sorry. No, we, we don't put that there. Um, and, 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 and there's a lot of things that I don't care about. I mean, I, I don't, I don't care about, you know, this, that, and the other, but, um, but I'm not going to do somebody's laundry for them. Mm -hmm. So, you know, mm -hmm. they, they I'm, I'm, if you want your laundry done, you'll have to do it, honey, or you can, or you can take dirty clothes up. That I don't care. I really don't. <laughs> not, you know, not my issue. Yep. Um, <laughs> I, I, I am. A grandma who just kind of looks at things and will go, oh, oh well, uh, you know, things get broken, things get messed up. It, it's just stuff. So, 
none of that bothers me. Um, but I, the granddaughter who moved in with us I, for the first five or six years, I would, I would be responsible for getting her ready for school. And so, you know, I would just say, I know, honey, I know, I'm sorry, it's, you're having a bad day. The school bus is on its way. We really have the school bus. Um, or I would say to her, no, no, I'm, I'm, I don't do favors for people who are rude to me. You were rude to me yesterday, so not, not doing any favors to you. Um, not doing any favors for you until you apologize and we discuss why you were rude to me yesterday. And I didn't push it. She didn't want to talk about it. That was okay. But just not going to do any favors for people who were rude to me. <laughs> right. So, mm -hmm. uh, so I, I, again, that comes from having raised traumatized kids. You, you, you have to set the boundaries. You have to be real consistent with the boundaries. But you have to let them decide. Do they want to live with consequences or do they want to follow the rules? You know? uh, and, and you don't take it personally, whatever they decide. Right, right. Well, let's talk a little bit about your book. Um, what was the impetus behind it and what were your goals? Well, the impetus, um, I'd been thinking about a book for a long time. And a, a lot of it was um, listening to friends of mine. Some of them were foster parents, but, you know, we have a whole lot of step parents these days. And I just saw them making oh, so many mistakes. And I had made some of the same mistakes uh, with my foster kids, and I, I just learned a lot from it. So I sort of had this impetus to try to explain to people when, when you're dealing with other people's kids, these are sort of some, some ground rules. You know, from the kid's perspective, you're not supposed to be there, and mm -hmm. nothing will ever change that. And that's okay. You can, you can still have a good relationship. You, you cannot ever replace their parent, but you can have a great uh, mentoring relationship. That's usually the way I describe it. Um, the immediate impulse was a friend of mine who had written a lot of books who just kept nagging me until I said, okay, yeah, all right, whatever, girl. I'll get it done. <laughs> and um, and then the, the timing of the pandemic, I wrote it during the pandemic. It was just a, it was a good time to sit and reflect and it was at the tail end um before the, our foster grandchild was aging out so mm. um it was a nice time to um, sort of take stock of things sure sure have any of your kids read the book um yes actually and and most of them have um thoroughly enjoyed it. of course you know the, the very first thing they um, said was, um, I figured out who most of the stories were about. <laughs> I, I anonymized all the stories, except there were a couple, you know, when I'm talking about my stepkids, um, I, I had to, I had to specifically get their permission because there's no way to, to hide that. Right. But, um, the, uh, the other stories were very anonymous. So that, that was their first question was, did they know who it was? And then, um, they they seem to have enjoyed it. They um, have reactions like, oh, "Okay, now now I understand what was going through your head." Because you know, of course, some instances they remember a little differently than I do. Um, mm -hmm. One of my um, stepkids is is now a stepfather, and he was commenting about how much he appreciated perspectives in the book <laughs> because he's 
going through a lot of the same things now that I went through and to be able to kind of go back to it and see uh, some of the principles that I talk about. Uh, and that and that part has been gratifying. Now that the, the pandemic has eased or, you know, we've, we've adjusted to whatever life is now, um, are there reunions? Do you, do you like to have, you know, to get as many of the foster kids and grandkids and everybody together? Um, we do. We, we actually, we uh, are in Georgia, which was one of the first states to open up. So we've been doing family stuff um, for, gosh, almost two years now. Um, and that has, that, that has been nice. You know, we, we have all the kids and then I've got my brother and sister and nephews and my husband has a brother who lives actually across the street. So we, we do a lot of getting together. One of my um, foster daughters lives out of state, so we have to travel to see that family. Or um, we, we spent, um, it was a week or 10 days at Disney World with them a couple of years ago. And um, that was nice. So to just kind of get away and be able to spend time with, with family, um, we, we do it as, as much as we can. Excellent. So I'm going to put you on the spot. Um, you know, I, I don't know if you listened to any of the episodes where Kendall and I were talking about um, looking into fostering, potentially ad- adopting. Um, what advice do you have for a couple of middle-aged guys like us who are thinking about diving into this pool? <laughs> well, I would say um, the, the same thing I say to everybody who asks about it. Um, start small and and go one step at a time. If you're thinking about foster, well, fostering and adopting are are often two different tracks, but um, they're some of the same principles. So um, start with, um, work with an agency that, you know, start the way I did. Start as an emergency placement. Um, Start doing respite care um, for a family that that needs a break on the, the weekends. The, um, a lot of um, agencies now will, um, and I, they have different names for it, it's called respite care, or they will um, license you for one particular child and, and you basically become a resource for um, one foster family. And that allows you to walk alongside them to see what they're doing, to learn from experienced foster families, to figure out the system, um, to complain with each other about the system and the government caseworkers, all of those things. Um, and then it, it won't be such a big deal to move into um, long-term placement after you've gone through some of those things. Um, yeah. The other thing I would say, my husband and I, our, our last placement was very draining, and um, it, it just ended a couple of years ago. And when my husband asked about going back into foster care, um, I was not, I didn't have the energy and wasn't ready, but um, we signed up with a group that um, has placed us as mentors with a couple of young adults who have aged out of foster care without connecting to a family. And so right now we are thoroughly enjoying that because we're able to do the mentoring. We're able to set up a relationship with these young men. 
but I'm not responsible for keeping them alive. I don't have to worry. <laughs> I don't have to worry about curfews and all of those other pressure points that you get with uh, young teens. Interesting that it was your husband who talked about getting back into fostering. You must have really uh, converted him. <laughs> I, well, he has always had a good heart. He's always um, cared. He's always appreciated. Um, and I, I think to some extent he, he was exhausted too, but I, I'm not really sure why we had such differing reactions to this most, to this most recent placement. It, it was difficult for both of us, but, mm-hmm. um, um, I've just, I've needed more time to retreat than he has. And, and actually I'll be honest with you, I've kind of gotten to the season of life where I enjoy having an empty nest and being able to go where I want to go when I want to go. And, you know, I put the dogs in the kennel and that's the extent of my responsibility for another living being. Mm-hmm. Sure. Mm-hmm. That's completely understandable. Yeah. <laughs> you got to take some Debbie time. That's right. <laughs> that's right. <laughs> well, this has been great. I, I really appreciate your perspective on this and, um, Obviously, you have a really good sense of humor, and I think you probably have to to kind of do what you've uh, yes. done. Yeah, yeah. There are times when if if you don't shrug and find something to laugh at, I, you know, you you will make yourself crazy. Right. Right. Well, thank you for all you've done over the years for helping kids. It's it's commendable. Absolutely. Well, you know, I I cannot imagine my life without my kids. So I I won't say that and. And I will also say that um, I know a lot of people talk about maybe not having patience or, or whatever for these um, for these high stake challenging things. And I just leave you with the thought that if if a left brained empathy challenge, not patient lawyer can do this, then anyone can. There, she's saying there's hope for me too. <laughs> right. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. That's. That's giving us both hope. So thank you, Debbie. (laughs) Sure. And thank you so much for taking some time to share your stories with us. Oh, thank you for the opportunity. I really appreciate it. Family Twist features original music from Cosmic Afterthoughts and is presented by Savoir Faire Marketing Communications. 